You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Anyone been invited to the coronation? By the end of this talk, you all might have a different answer to that question, actually. So, while honouring the King, King Charles III, and with due respect, we'll see that an infinitely greater coronation than that planned for May the 6th is coming. One to which, in fact, all of us have been invited, not just as guests, but as participants. The, the coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ will make him king over all nations, not just the United Kingdom, over all nations and peoples of the earth. A coronation of a king and of people chosen by God to be kings and priests with him. So we're going to briefly consider Bible teaching about coronations old and new. And we'll draw a comparison between those ordained of God and those of men. First, then, the coronation by God. And in scripture we find that this was primarily intended for men selected to be priests, not kings. But of course, when Israel rejected God as their king, a procedure was adapted for a dual role as leader of God's people. So before ever there was a king in Israel, the priests judged, manifesting God. (coughs) Furthermore, the first reference to the crown is not of a person or even a priest, but for the gold covering of the ark. It's in our readings recently. Exodus 25 says, thou shalt overlay it with pure gold Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. Let's turn to Exodus 29, where we have reference to uh, the priesthood. Exodus 29, we have Aaron and his sons. It says there, verse uh, 4, And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shalt wash them with water, Thou shalt take the garments and put upon Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate and gird him with the curious girdle of the ephod. And thou shalt put the mitre upon his head and put the holy crown upon the mitre. Then shalt thou take the anointing oil and pour it upon his head and anoint him. And it goes on to describe how the same procedure was for his sons. Now, in Friday's uh, first reading in Leviticus 8, there were details about the consecration made by anointing oils, followed by the shedding of animal blood in sacrifice. And then that blood was taken and mixed with the oil and sprinkled on Aaron and his sons, the priests. Now, you'll be familiar with a quote I'm going to make from a psalm. 
in which unity is likened to this anointing of the priest. You remember Psalm 133. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now, earlier, Lawrence uh, indicated that he was happy to volunteer in any way. Um, for <laughs> and I, I did say, didn't I, Lawrence? It was very kind of him. And I was thinking of bringing a very large quantity of olive oil and pouring it. He has a beard, after all. And no, but we're not going to do that. But you get the idea of what this anointing process was like. Just fast forward, we will not be seeing that in London or anything like it. And in fact, as we'll discover, the method by which the kings of England have been anointed bear no resemblance to this process, which you can see the spiritual significance of this. Um, it's phenomenal. Turn then to Exodus 30, and we have a verse there which is good to read, because now it talks about what was inside this anointing oil. And God had determined the ingredients of it and the proportions. And nobody knew, other than the priests, what that secret recipe was. Moreover, verse 22, Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, and it goes on to talk about sweet cinnamon, talks about sweet calamus of cassia, and it mentions olive oil. And thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Thou shalt anoint the tabernacle. It goes on the ark, the table and all his vessels, the candlestick and his vessels, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings, all his vessels, the laver and his foot. Thou shalt sanctify them that they may be most holy. Whatsoever toucheth them shall be holy. And it goes on, Thou shalt anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. This shall be an holy anointing oil unto me throughout your generations. Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall ye make any other like it after the composition of it. It is holy, and it shall be holy unto you. Look at verse 33. Whosoever compoundeth any like it, or whosoever putteth any of it upon a stranger, shall even be cut off from his people. So very, very special. God's wisdom determined what it was, and how it was to be made, and how it was to be regarded. And... Um, the coronation then by kings done by men, um, well, it's interesting this, because Deuteronomy, uh, in Deuteronomy 17, God warned prophetically that the people, his people, would want a man as a king, like all the nations that are round about, God said. And yet, even acknowledging that that's what they would ultimately desire, God's commanded... Thou shalt, in, so thou shalt set him king over thee, whom Yahweh thy God shall choose. That's very significant, that. Because although 
the people desired Saul because he was head and shoulders and all that. It was actually of God's determining. And so there also followed in that prophecy prohibitions on a king that would arise. Talks about multiplying horses, multiplying wives, um, hoarding silver and gold, taking the children of, of the people of Israel into servitude and so forth. Of course, it's in Samuel that we have recorded the fulfillment of that prophecy. They said to Samuel, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so Samuel, as a prophet, but knowing also the scriptures, Deuteronomy, he warns them what the consequences will be. Um, nevertheless, it says in that passage in Samuel, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, nay, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so it was in 1 Samuel 10, if you want to look at it, God records the acceptance by him of the man chosen. And it says at the beginning of that passage in 1 Samuel 10, then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon Saul's head and kissed him and said, is it not because Yahweh hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? Later, we read of the Amalekite who said of the dead Saul in the battle, said to David, I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm. And I think that's the only evidence we have, actually, of the fact that Saul wore a crown of some description. Later, we read in 1 Samuel 16 how God chose King David telling Samuel, quote, call Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show thee what thou shalt do and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. Again, God is in control of the selection of the individual who's going to act, albeit imperfectly, as a shepherd of his people. 1 Samuel, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel and chapter 12. Verse 30, David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took their king's crown from off his head, the weight whereof was a talent of gold, with the precious stones, and it was set on David's head. So there you've got an interesting piece of evidence again about this crown, this, this gold with jewels. Later, we know that when David was sick, he knew that God had chosen Solomon as his successor, but it was reported, wasn't it, that others sought to make Adonijah king. And so the record in 1 Kings 1 records how David instructs Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet to immediately take Solomon and anoint him king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, God save the king. I think this is the first time in scripture we have that phrase used. 
And needless to say, that's another thing which has been mimicked over the centuries by the world in their kingmaking. Now, in the Psalms, it refers to Solomon um, in stating this, thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. 2 Samuel 23 tells us that the king should serve God by ruling with equity and righteousness. And remember this phrase, because it's going to crop up again um, in the British um, king-making procedure. So the verse reads, 2 Samuel 23, verse 3, The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Later we have the record of young Joash. They brought out the king's son and put on him the crown, gave him the testimony and made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, God save the king. Now the other kings of Israel were mostly chosen by man's wisdom and failed. And of course God knew that this would happen. And so we have that wonderful prophecy in Ezekiel 22. Thus saith uh, the Lord Yahweh, remove the diadem, take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low, abase him that is high. I will overturn, overturn, overturn it. It shall be no more until he come, whose right it is, and I will give it him. Now you might have thought anybody knowing that scripture would never have engaged in making a king over them, their people because it was for God to decide who this would be. Now, now we move to coronation of uh, English monarchs and I was indebted to uh, have the benefit of getting this book which was uh, published about 12 years ago, Sir Roy Strong, and it's the most uh, authoritative study of the coronation going right back to records from Alfred the Great. And it was republished at the beginning of this year. Um, the publishers in September of last year must have uh, got wind of the fact that the Queen was um, very poorly. And he was asked to revise it and add a new um, epilogue. It's been very helpful to, to read and uh, learn how things have been done over the centuries and the lessons that uh, it, it has for us. Now, the palace has issued a number of briefings about how King Charles's coronation will take place. And there are certain rituals which will be kept. Interestingly, the oil uh, will be significantly different to what was used by, uh, in the coronation of his mother and of uh, others going back some generations. The anointing is still regarded to be the central feature of the coronation because the primary function of the monarch in this country is as supreme governor of the Church of England, which is a priestly role, you might say. And there's no option out of that. Now, interestingly, it's on the record that both the Queen's father, George VI, and her uncle, um, Edward VIII, both balked at the idea of being anointed in this spiritual way. And they were overruled, interestingly. Now, we don't know exactly how King Charles's coronation will take place, but there are certain things that will persist as rituals. Um, 
And in a sense, many of them are blasphemous applications, really, of what we read in the Old Testament, which is the way God worked with his people. But we're going to consider some of those, and then we're going to look at a coronation yet to come, a glorious one, and the evidence in Scripture of how Jesus will be enthroned. So the earliest account, interestingly, of an English coronation is one that was written down by a man called Oswald, who was Archbishop of York. And the individual in question's name was Edgar. Now, have any of you ever heard of Edgar, a king of England? Uh, I haven't, but I'm sure there's some scholars here that, or people who know more about this than I who may. Edgar uh, was crowned in 973 AD. And he became king earlier at the age of 16. But he waited, interestingly, until he was 30 years of age for his coronation. And there's speculation as to whether he was patterning himself on the Lord Jesus Christ, who began his ministry and service at the age of 30. Now, back then, he ordered all of the ministers of the church, and this would have been the Roman church, for the Reformation, and they all assembled at the place of his choosing, which was Bath, which still apparently had echoes and evidences of the Roman period, the imperial um, ways of, of Bath. The day chosen by him was Pentecost, deliberately. And on entering the church, he prostrated himself, and then he stood again, and this was all indicating the rebirth of a new man, raised to glory, and soon to be anointed by the oil which represented the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. The king was cast as, forgive my pronunciation of Latin, rector et defensor ecclesia, which means ruler and defender of the church. So he entered the church and took off his crown and prostrated himself before the altar. Now the coronation oath goes back to Edgar and it was a document of three pledges made by him, possibly in Latin, it's not, I'm not sure. The document was delivered to the king by the archbishop and then placed on the altar. This three-part pledge was the actual coronation oath. And that's remained through the centuries as one of the defining documents as to the nature of monarchy. And it's still kept, this concept of the oath, the three pledges. Although, as you'll gather, it's changed over time. The first pledge is that the Church of God and all Christian people preserve peace at all times. The second, that the king forbids rapacity and all iniquity to all degrees. I take that to mean that the king himself would avoid any sort of indulgence and sinfulness to best ability. And the third um, oath element was that in all judgments, he will enjoin equity and mercy. And you remember that passage we read earlier? That's what it's picking up on from Samuel. Now the queen gave these three promises, modified, as her father had, 
governing the Commonwealth, promising mercy and justice in her rule, and defending the church. Now, some of the wording indicates a conscious desire to fulfil that passage in 2 Samuel 23. A king must rule in righteousness and equity. And there's also that assumption about a dual role as a king-priest. The archbishops and bishops anointed the head with what is still called, and they're using this term now, chrism, a fragrant mixture of oil and balsam poured back then from an animal horn. <coughs> By this supposed rebirth, it was claimed um, the man would arise to serve God, accompanied by a succession of prayers. And the prayers were made back then, invoking the good kings of the Old Testament as exemplars of the virtues to be granted by the Spirit. Prophets and priests who had been similarly anointed and calling upon the Holy Spirit to descend and sanctify Edgar. And then following this, the most solemn moment of the whole coronation service came the anthem, Ungzerunt Solomonum, which is the singing of the anointing of Solomon by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, when they blew the trumpets and piped the pipes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth rent with the sound of them. And they said, this is quoting scripture, God save King Solomon. Long live the king. May the king live forever. And hence this tradition is still observed. At that point, Edgar then received the ring, which signified the seal of holy faith, the sword by which to vanquish his enemies, both his enemies, the foes of the church and opponents of the realm. He then received the crown of glory and righteousness, the scepter, the sign of kingly power, and the staff of virtue and equity. And the crown, interestingly, back then, that first time, Edgar, was made of laurel, entwined with roses. And immediately after that, a mass was held, followed by a great feast. And of course, this has been reenacted um, for over a thousand years. And it was enhanced, many feel, in the 18th century by Handel's music. Now, in the past two coronations, while standing beside the coronation chair, the monarch was presented to those gathered in the abbey by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the congregation shouted, God save the king, and some trumpets were sounded. And there's a detail. The Archbishop of Canterbury asks the assembly in each of four directions whether they are all willing to do homage and service. And so he faced the Lord Chancellor, the Lord Great Chamberlain, the Lord High Constable, and the Garter King of Arms. Okay? And the idea of this was it facilitated the required assent of all the people present to him becoming their king. The robe of King Charles will be removed and he will sit on the coronation chair, which you may have heard, well, is currently being refurbished. And it will include the stone of scone, which 
the Scottish Government decided some months ago to allow on loan for this purpose, although Alex Salmond has other ideas which have been reported in the press just in this weekend. And, and just as, as an aside, the legend about the stone, the origins of the Stone of Scone, are that it was from biblical times. And it was suggested that it was the stone that Jacob used um, when he was uh, on his way to Haran, Genesis 28. Um, the same stone of Jacob um, was then supposedly taken to ancient Ireland. It goes on. And of course, the, the interesting thing is that geologists in recent day, recent years have completely contradicted this by saying that actually it's um, old red sandstone which was quarried nearby in Scone, in Scotland. <laughs> so there we have it. A gold cloth will be held over the chair to conceal the king from view at one stage in the proceedings. The Archbishop of Canterbury would anoint the king's hands, his breastbone and his head with a small portion of this holy oil uh, made to a new recipe, only announced on Friday, um, whereby it's been decided not to obtain it from the uh, apothecary and chemist to the monarchy based in London and used over the centuries recent, but rather a new um, anointing oil is to be made from a recipe from olive trees taken from the Garden of Gethsemane crushed in Bethlehem and consecrated, this happened only the last week, by the Greek Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem and Jerusalem's Anglican Archbishop. <clears throat> Unlike the oil formulated for past coronation anointing, it will exclude any ingredients from animals. And this is all putting out a big signal you know, about the, the current values of the age and the avoidance of any harm to animals and environmentally friendly ingredients and all the rest of it. And of course, bringing together both the Greek Orthodox and the Anglican traditions in this way is also putting out a signal um, that King Charles III wants to um, put over. But it will be perfumed with sesame, rose, jasmine, cinnamon, neroli, um, orange Blossom. Would you have liked that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And so this was only announced uh, on Friday, and it's, um, and interestingly, that whole thing about the anointing oil and how it would be made and places from which it would be obtained was something that um, the Archbishop of Canterbury was, has gone public in saying how this was something very dear to his heart. And of course, he had a lot of experience in the oil industry. King Charles III is reported to have chosen to be dressed in military uniform. And the rows of medals, it's been commented, will make anointing the breastbone uh, challenging. And so it's possible that that may be excluded in a modernizing um, approach to his coronation. But in any event, as we've seen, the anointing of God's priests and kings was of a very different magnitude and significance spiritually. 
And the quantity of oil must have been great for it to flow from the head through the beard, um, through clothing to the feet. So the next stage will be the investiture. The, sol uh, the sovereign is presented with items including the royal orb, representing religious and moral authority, they say, the scepter, which represents power, and as distinct from the sovereign scepter, a rod of gold topped with white enameled dove, a symbol of justice and mercy. And finally, the archbishop will place St. Edward's crown on the king's head, and then will follow the enthronement and homage, and the king will leave the coronation chair and move to the throne, and peers will kneel before the monarch to pay homage. Now, the imitation by all of this of truly holy things um, is clearly seeking to evoke authority and credibility. Um, but in fact, it's shallow. And it's a poor imitation of what is, was done in the past and what's prophesied for the future. So now we want to focus finally on our Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> in Luke chapter 1, let's turn to that and discover the teaching of God through his word. And Luke chapter 1, verse 32, remember this part of the promise made to Mary. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is a very different magnitude, isn't it? The kings of this world will fall down before Christ because he judges the world in righteousness. They will recognise that he is one who truly does possess equity where they failed, however much they tried, if at all. And there'll be an interesting pattern of a passage uh, I discovered in Jonah. Um, I'll quote it, Jonah 3, verse 6. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he laid down his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, sackcloth and sat in ashes. That was the response of a worldly king to the glory of God. John 18, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And remember how Pilate says to him, So you're a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world. And so it is that Revelation 11 records this wonderful teaching. In verse 15, the seventh angel sounded. There were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, the follower of Christ anticipates that day when he will be enthroned in Jerusalem. And until such time... The disciple of Jesus, as we read, must honour the king. The twelve disciples will be enthroned by Jesus and the saints will be made king priests after the order of Melchizedek. And we have this wonderful prospect then, as I said at the beginning, we've all been invited to coronation of the king. It's a question of whether we want to be there and whether we 
take the necessary steps and believe that God's grace will permit us to be there. And so it says in Revelation 3, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. So it's a very real invitation to all of us, isn't it? To be part of that wonderful uh, process of becoming kings and priests. And so 1 Peter 2 we read, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Psalm 2 tells us that the Son of God will be given the nations for his inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. And you remember how through Daniel, Daniel 7, it records the great vision. This is what he said. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with clouds of heaven. It goes on, and they were given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Let's read together from Psalm 72, which will be fulfilled in Jesus when he comes and is king. And you'll notice it's not all about luxury and the appearance of gold and you know, diamonds of, his, of distinction and all the rest of it. <coughs> it's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with this in Psalm 72. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people, the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people, save the children of the needy, break in pieces the oppressor. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him, for he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. The focus from that, you can see, of the king to come, Jesus, is all about caring for people. It's not about himself, not about how grand he is and carriages and all the trappings of wealth and power and prestige. It's about God's grace. He manifests the qualities of God. And so Revelation speaks of him. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. So the question we posed at the beginning, uh, anyone been invited to the coming coronation? I can th you can see now, we all have been, haven't we? And so Exodus 19 then is our final quote. Let's turn to that together. Exodus 19 and verse five. This was God's desire from the beginning, and it can involve you and me by grace. Exodus 19 and verse 5. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Amen.